I would encourage you, morning already, just Ben's testimony and uh, James is sharing. Just spend time now in the Word. But it's uh, some of a transition, but it's at the same time, now weightiness for me this morning to preach on, you know, the high calling of the daughters of God. It's a somewhat of a weighty topic for me to stand before you and proclaim, herald the truth of Scripture. First time I ever really heard expository preaching was from this text. The, you know, I found myself in a car driving down to a high school where Faith Bible Church was meeting. And the first time I ever heard Chris Mueller uh, preach a sermon, and he preached it from Titus 2. And I sat there as he was preaching to women. He was preaching to wives and to mothers to forsake the things of the world. And he was urging them and he was pleading with them to set aside worldly pursuits, set aside their ambitions for career, and set aside their ambitions for what the world had for them and to to embrace motherhood and to embrace God's high calling for a wife and for a mother, to be a worker at home, to love their husbands and to submit to their husbands and love their children. And when he was using these words like, submit to your husbands, and when he was using these, these words like, quit your job and stay home, I was, I was flabbergasted. Never in my entire life had I ever heard a man preaching the Word of God and demanding all of what Scripture had on the life of all of God's people. And so for me, this, you know, for you this morning, it may not uh, affect you the way it affected me, because maybe these things aren't new to you. But for me, hearing these things in the kind of context I grew up in, I was sweating. And what my perception was, the things this guy is saying, these are offensive. And what, these, what, these, what this guy is saying to these people, these people must be offended. They must be, they must be offended by what this guy is saying. And I had that, uh, you know that when someone's up front and they're saying things, and you're embarrassed for them, you know, when someone's making a fool of themselves, and you're just like, what is this guy doing? And I had that feeling for this guy as he's preaching. But I looked around, and everyone was watching this guy. They were either watching and nodding their heads, or I looked around and I saw hundreds of women writing down in their notepads what this man was saying. I heard women nodding their heads, and I saw men saying, Amen, and looking at their wives, and wives looking at their husbands, and saying, This is what we want. This is what God's Word said, and this is what we want to do. And it was the first time I ever saw a body of believers fully submitted heart, soul, and mind to the Word of God. And so that's my prayer this morning. My earnest prayer and my expectation is that you will receive the Word of God as it is the Word of God. And you will hear the Scriptures, and you will hear the exhortations, and maybe the hard commands, but you'll say, that's the Word of God. That's not Marcus's words. And I want to do this. I don't embrace this wholeheartedly. And that's how I long for you to respond today. That perhaps though you've heard these things and you've heard sermons like this many times, that this morning God would give you virgin ears. And you hear it for the first time, you say, this is pleasing to me. This is what I want to do. Well, perhaps what may cause this kind of response this morning is a fresh perspective of an old truth. The old truth is that all things have been created for the glory of God. Right? Not a new concept for most of you this morning. The glory of God, all things for God. But there's a constant need for us to wrap our minds around this truth and to believe that this is true. So Colossians 1.16, By Him all things were created, both in heaven and earth. By Him all things were created. They are for Him and they are through Him. So the, the fresh perspective of this truth is that you and I have not even seen one billionth of all that God has created for His glory. Okay, God has created all things for His glory, and yet you and I have not seen even a billionth, a, 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 a small fraction of all that God has created for His glory. There are stars and planets and universes and galaxies that no man has ever seen. Scientists just discovered three new quasars, if I'm saying that right, way out in the depths of space. A quasar is something like a massively powerful star that is equivalent to one trillion of our suns. These incredibly bright objects are thought to be powered by gas 
falling into enormous black holes situated in the center of galaxies. Although smaller than our solar system, a single quasar can outshine a hundred billion stars. Alright? So that would be like having a match that shines brighter than our sun. That's how powerful these are. Now, scientists just discovered some of these. It's been in the past years, and it was a couple weeks ago that they discovered three new quasars. And they're looking at these things, and they're, they're baffled at these things. And they see the magnitude and the power of these stars. And yet, these things have existed for 6,000 years. They've existed in space, shining brightly, glorifying God, proclaiming the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And no man's ever seen them. And yet God's glorified by them. And my point is that creation exists for the glory of God, whether we see it or not. All creation exists primarily for God and for God alone. We don't have a clue what is out there. There are stars dancing around full of beauty and mystery and awe to the likes of that which we have never seen. And we will never see them. Why? Because they're not for us. They're for God. God has made all things for His glory and He proves that by making things that we will never see and then letting our minds run wild with the thoughts of who knows what in the world is out there. And He says, you'll never see it and it doesn't matter because I didn't create it for you, I created it for me. But there are some things that God has ordained that we do see. In fact, there are some ways that the amount of glory God gets depends upon the way you shine. And our text from Titus 2 this morning is about God getting glory by the way His daughters live their lives. Until you get that God is calling you to obey, not for you, but first for God, then you'll miss the point of this text. This text does not exist primarily for you, but first and foremost for God. First and foremost for His glory. Ephesians 1.4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Salvation is not primarily about us, it's about God. It's about God saving us for His glory, saying, look at these trophies of my sovereign grace. Look at these vessels of my mercy which shine brightly and proclaim my, my might and my power. And so this text's purpose is the glory of God, and the title of this sermon is The High Calling of the Daughters of God. The high calling of the daughters of God. And so with this in mind, I want to read our text this morning. Titus 2. I'll read 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Father, again, we ask that you would be exalted and that specifically from this text, the Word of God would not be dishonored, but that in our church, in this body of precious believers, of these dear sisters, of these godly women, that, Lord, they would lift high the Word of God that the women in our midst would be pillars in support of the truth. And that, Lord, they would please you as choice silver, precious instruments for your glory and for your namesake. Lord, give me grace to make it clear and give them receptivity to hear and obey. Amen. Well, the media constantly portrays us men as being confused by women. It betrays us as constantly trying to figure out what makes women tick. It it pictures men as being constantly confounded by this creature called a woman. And I say that there's some truth to that. Okay, There's some truth to that. There's a biblical principle for husbands in 1 Peter 3.7 that tells husbands that they are to study their wives. They are to examine them and they are, they are trying to learn what makes their wife tick. And they are to study what they like. They are, they are to study what they don't like and what makes them feel loved and cherished. They are to study and learn about their wife's struggles and sins. 
and they're, they're struggling and learn and, and study their wife and, and how to shepherd them and how to meet their needs, how to care for them. But the reality is that men will study their wives for years and even then they will still sometimes be baffled. But God is never baffled by women. God is not baffled by the way women work. God is not confounded by them. God is not trying to figure out the way women tick. Because God is the creator. He is the one who makes the woman tick. No one knows a woman's heart like God. And our text this morning is not merely Paul's insights into a woman. It's God's revelation of what he understands and knows about the heart of a woman. Titus 2 unfolds God's infinite understanding of of how the fall, of how sin has impacted women. Because there are particular sins that women are more prone to than men are more prone to. The fall has affected all men. It is depraved and all men. All men are condemned. All people, their nature is corrupt. But how sin corrupts people works differently in some ways than in others. And it affects women in some ways that it doesn't affect men. Or it causes them to be prone to different sins. Uh, it's just sin more regularly in some areas that men don't sin in. And so this morning we're going to unfold how God sees the heart of a woman. And we're going to unfold, begin to unfold at least, God's high calling. So we turn now to our text. The first phrase, older women likewise. Older women likewise, just as the older men have been exhorted likewise, God has a plan for the older women of this church. Generally, older women would have been those women who had the markings of wisdom. Those women who were, who were graying in hair and, and were forming some wrinkles. They would have been the women who had children and whose children had children. And they were now grandparents. And they had, they had been an uh, example of godliness. And their children were walking with the Lord. But it's been taught already, older has to be defined by context, especially in our midst. Most of our older women are defined so merely in our church because they're only a little older than the younger women. Same with the men. We no doubt have many godly women in our church who are precious models of all that we will learn about Titus 2, 3-5. But there is one woman that we will consult this entire series who is the wisest of all women. She is the wisdom crying out in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. And so this woman is here this morning. She is beckoning us to heed her wisdom, that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so her first exhortation to us this morning is to be reverent in your behavior. Women, God's high calling on you this morning is that you would be reverent in your behavior. The word behavior means manner of life, demeanor. This refers to the outward expression of an inner reality. In other words, what you are, out, what you are outside, who you are outside is who you are inside. The term reverent combines two Greek words which mean temple and the other word which means that which is appropriate. Temple and that which is appropriate. This is the only time that this word is used in all of Scripture. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it designates that which is fitting for a woman who serves as a priestess in the temple. Okay? It is that religious weightiness that is befitting of a woman who serves and ministers in the confines of the temple. It is the picture of, of Anna. Remember in, in Luke 2, Anna, the prophetess who had, her husband had died young and she had been in the temple for years and years. It says day and night she was ministering to the Lord with prayers and with fastings. That's the picture that this word conveys to us. It's the heart of a priestess. It's the heart of a woman who's constantly waiting hand and foot upon the Lord, serving Him and ministering to Him. But Paul isn't talking to priestesses like Anna. He's not talking to uh, prophetesses. He's talking to you. Women, he's talking to you this morning. 
the scriptures use this word to show that all of your life is to be lived as that of a priestess. You are not Old Testament saints who go to the temple. You are New Testament believers who have the Holy Spirit. You don't leave the temple and the temple does not leave you. But everything about you is to be holy and it is to be consecrated to the service of Yahweh. 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 has a similar saying. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for a woman, making a claim to godliness. The correlation is that internal religion results in external dignity. The true quality of your piety and holiness is not what you look like at church on Sundays. It's how you conduct your life Monday through Saturday. And we know that. We're aware of that. True dignity is not what you look like this morning at church. This is where everyone puts on the showcase. Okay? I'm not mocking anyone. You know, we come on Sundays and we're striving our hardest to be at our best. We dress our best. We put on our best attitude. And we talk our best. But the true reverence is how you live your life Monday through Saturday. 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 and Titus 2, 3 tell us that God is concerned about the woman from head to toe. He is concerned with the way she dresses. He is concerned with the way she walks and the way she talks and the things that she thinks about. He is concerned with the music she listens to and the people she spends time with. He is concerned with how much money is spent on clothes and jewelry and makeup and haircuts and entertainment. Because all those things are acts of a priestess. All of your life is laid in the silver censer and brought into the Holy of Holies and offered up to the King of Kings. And since all of your women's, since all of your dealings are to be done as an act of a priestess, what you have to ask is, is this really the work of a priestess? Can I offer this up to God as a sacrifice? That's the question that you must ask. Would a priestess wear this, or buy that, or listen to this, or look at a man like that, or or carry myself this way, or walk like this? Am I offering up a life that is holy? Or am I like Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 who offered a strange, unholy offering to God? The binding of this text is that you would be women of reverence. Right now, this is maybe a little cheesy, but let me be cheesy. Okay? How would you prepare yourself if you were going to go on a date with Jesus? Okay? How would you prepare yourself if you were going to go on a date with Jesus? Or... For you married, if, if Christ was going to accompany you on a time with your wife, or he was going to come to your home for dinner, how would you prepare yourself? Would you be more concerned about your makeup or your heart? Would you pull out the tight jeans, or would you pull out the modest and God-honoring apparel? Would you really go to that movie and talk about those things? Or would you say, Jesus, could you just wait outside while we watch this? I don't think you'd like this. Or, you know, Jesus, I'm a little embarrassed to wear something this sexy in front of you, so maybe could you stay home tonight? Or, what if Jesus wanted to stay at your place for a few days? You know, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed about the way I, I live my life, so can we just meet at church on Sundays? Christ's desire is that you would see that He's with you always. That He is in you, and that you are in Him, and that you are priestesses to Him. And that everything you're doing is, is given to Him in a silver censer for His glory. And so this text cries out that you would be dignified women, that you would be reverent. You are called to be modest, precious, and beautiful women first and foremost to the glory of God. Proverbs 11, verse 22 gives a very interesting statement. It says, As a ring of gold and a swine's snout so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. If this proverb is true, we live in a world of ring-nosed hogs. How many women lack discretion? How many women are clueless about holiness? How many women adorn their externals but are internally destitute? How many women flaunt and flirt and are consumed with the outward appearance but know little of godliness? But I know that it is not so with the women of Cornerstone Bible Church. The women of this church are godly women. 
I'm not flattering you. I speak with sincerity. God in His grace has given you hearts of obedience and hearts that love Christ. And there are, there are godly women in this church. There are women who conduct themselves with dignity. There are women who conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel. There are young women in here who are growing in, in modesty and in holiness and in purity. I see the way that you, 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 you serve and the way that you serve families. I see your heart, the way you love children and the way you care for the saints. Older women, I see the way that, that you love your husbands, that you serve them, that you submit to them, that you honor them. And, and there's godly women at this church. And my heart is encouraged. So I want to say to you women that you are a treasure here on earth. You are precious silver vessels for the glory of God. And you shine brightly for His glory. But there are times when silver gets tarnished. There are times when its sparkle and its shine get faded. And God brings this word to you this morning not as a scathing whip, but as a, a gentle cloth to rub you and, and polish you so that you would shine all the more brightly. God's burning desire for you is that you would increase and abound in godliness. And so first, reverent behavior is the priestess-like behavior. It's the overarching command here. And it really begins and sets the foundation for God's high calling on the daughters of God. But it just sets up the rest of the commands. So let's move on to the second one. The second command is that older women not be malicious gossips. Don't be a malicious gossip. You could translate it, not gossips, not slanders. A secular definition of slander is the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. It's a false and defamatory oral statement about a person. Okay, that's the world's definition. You know, I think it's pretty good, uh, pretty moral. But I think the biblical definition would go a little further. Slander is the utterance of charges about another person, whether true or false, that proceed from a heart of anger, bitterness, or selfishness, whose intention is to inflict pain on another. It's similar to gossip. Gossip is a rumor or report of an intimate nature, whether true or false. Slanderers are persons who use their tongues to hurt others. The phrase malicious gossips here in Titus 2 translate this, translates the single Greek word diabolos. This is the same word from which we get the name devil. Diabolos is used 34 times in the New Testament to refer to Satan. In Bible times and in other cultures, your name was often a description about you. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. Isaac's firstborn son came out all hairy, and so they named him Esau, which means hairy. Benjamin, Benjamin, his name means son of my right hand. Because Jacob had lost his favorite son Joseph and then Benjamin replaced him. So he named him son of my right hand, my most precious son. Tamar's son Perez. Perez means breach because of how he was born. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. The name Marcus means I love Korean barbecue. Okay? <laughs> names, names are descriptive of who you are. Okay? You guys didn't know that's what my name meant, but it does. Okay? Alright, the scriptures have named Satan the Diabolos, the devil. The name devil is descriptive of Satan because he is a slander, a false accuser. The name Satan means adversary. In Revelation 12.9, it says that the serpent of old is called the devil and Satan. Or you could say the serpent of old is called the slanderer and the adversary. 
Satan is the adversary of God. He is the false accuser first of God. He slandered God and spoke evil of God to Eve, telling her that God did not want her to eat of the tree because she would be like God. And if you study Genesis 3, you'll see all sorts of sins going on. But one sin that you'll see is prevalent is the sin of slander. Satan slandered God. In essence, he told Eve that God, God does not want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. Which in some sense was true, but Satan painted a picture of God as being an incredibly selfish and arrogant person. And Eve believed the devil. She listened to his lies and partook of the tree in hostility to God's commands. The lesson here is that slander is so destructive that it ushered the entire human race to the gates of hell. That's how potent this sin is. Slander was the sin of the Pharisees. Jesus Christ told the Pharisees in John 8.44 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And what was even more shocking was when Jesus told the Pharisees that Satan was their own father. Why did he say that? Because they were lying. Because they were telling Christ that you have a demon. And they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And they were telling other people, don't listen to this fool. Don't listen to this demon-possessed man. He is a liar. And in saying those, they were slandering God to His face and slandering God to other people. As far as is concerned with man's responsibility, slander is what put Christ on the cross. The Pharisees slandered Jesus up and down to Pilate and to the people. They aroused the people to believe lies about Christ. And with those lies, they stabbed his hands and feet and nailed him to the cross. And yet here in our text this morning, Paul addresses this specific sin to women because it's been a struggle for women since the very fall itself. It is a doubly heinous sin because not only is the person who slanders a liar, but often the person listening to slander is brought in as an accomplice as they buy into the lies of what are being said. Eve became an accomplice to slander. She believed the lies of the devil that he was giving her about God. And so she ate. Okay? That's what slander is. Now I believe it's necessary to, this morning to address this sin in two categories for the women. There are young women here this morning who struggle with this sin. Okay? The Bible's heart is that you would cease from this so that you would be a truly beautiful and godly woman in the sight of the Lord and before the church. Unfortunately, some young women look beautiful on the outside, but they have a growing cancer on the inside. Some of you are spreaders of this disease. You speak of other women with slander. You say things about them with evil intention and with bitterness and malice in your hearts. Others of you are contractors of this disease. You listen to the disease, this communicable disease, and you accept what is being said. You accept the lies that are being propagated. And you listen to them and they, they like morsels bury themselves into your heart. And they give you a wrong perspective of the sisters or other or believers in the church. And then you go and you minister in the church and you fellowship with this, with this slander in your heart. And you judge others wrongly based on what someone else has said. What makes this sin even more wicked in the church is that oftentimes people slander others behind their backs and then act loving to their face. This is like giving someone a meal that you spit in. This sin is like malaria and it can spread rapidly from woman to woman. If you are a perpetrator, know that it takes the mindset of a priestess to put a halt on it. If you are an accomplice, it takes a godly woman, a dignified woman, a priestess to put a stop to it. The next time someone begins to slander someone to you, godliness deems that you will say, Stop! Think about what you are saying. For your own good, for your own character, retract your words. Retract the words that you are propagating. Retract the heart from which this comes forth. Be mindful that slander is what brought us into this wretched state in the first place. And slander is what put our Lord on the cross. And encourage her or him 
to turn from his waywardness and put a guard over his mouth or her mouth. Proverbs 10.18 says, He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who speaks slander is a fool. Slander and accusations are deadly, and I say this first and foremost for your own character, because a slanderer will be found out. The chances are, if you struggle with this sin in this church, you're already known. We've got a small church. Gossip spreads quickly, and the knowledge of who started it and where it came from spreads quickly as well. You know, these exhortations, at least from my own heart, first come from my concern for your own character. That you would be righteous, holy, godly women. That you wouldn't be known as a slanderer. You wouldn't be known as someone who's bitter, who's evil speaking about others. But that you would be known as a woman who loves Christ and speaks highly of others. And so I'll just quickly say, if you're guilty of this this morning, or if you have been guilty of this and you haven't taken care of it, repent in your heart. And as soon as this sermon's over, get right. If you've sinned against someone, get right with them so you can get right with God. But our context here isn't just women in general, but it's older women. Older women who are usually shepherds in the church, who are to be examples, who are to be godly and dignified. Being a slanderer is very easy when you're in a position of leadership. By very definition of being a leader and a shepherd, you have to talk about others. But women can quickly turn the necessary tool of discussing other women into a cruel weapon. It may not always start out wrong, but talking to another, to, about another sister's life or another family can quickly slide down into the sin of slander. Sometimes this sin can be very deceptive or hidden. Perhaps the words you are saying are not in and of themselves wrong or untrue, but it's the heart behind them. And that's why the tongue is so dangerous and full of deadly poison. Because mere words, mere words can be sinful and deadly and destructive. All of us know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that Christian spin move where you speak truth from a heart that is bitter and vindictive. You take out your frustrations and annoyances with the sheep by speaking wrongly about them to another shepherd. This goes on in our ministry. Everyone from pastors down to small group leaders down to all other saints have sinned in this way. But older women, this is directed mostly to you because you're easily prone to this. You're easily prone to this sin. And then what happens is that the heart of slander stays with you and you go to shepherd that young woman who you've slandered and you speak against her in anger and instead of gently shepherding her, you box her and beat her up. So I get in some touchy areas again, but say that if there's any areas where this has affected relationships, your relationship with sisters, your relationship with other women whom you minister to or shepherd, then do what you can to make it right that you would speak truth and love with, with gentleness, Second Timothy 2, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition to the truth so that God may grant repentance. All of you women, I would encourage you to this prayer, Psalm 141, verse 3. It's David's own prayer. And the, the radicalness is that it's against his own enemies. And he prays, he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So let's pray that we would keep a door over our mouths, that we would guard our lips. Our third command this morning for our older women is that you would not be enslaved to much wine. Not be enslaved to much wine. That's literally what it means. It demands that women not be drunkards. Right? That they not be addicted to alcohol. That they not be binging. Right? Not be partying, if you will. Now, on Crete, seems like this must have been a, a real struggle, a real issue. And my first response this morning would be, you know, drunkenness, uh, enslaved to much wine, probably isn't a big issue at our church. And yet, at the same time, I want to assume nothing. 
if you are enslaved to alcohol, uh, this is a secret sin, particularly for any of you sisters this morning. Uh, for any women in our midst, if you have a hidden enslavement to alcohol uh, or to drugs, then certainly I would urge you to repentance. And yet I understand that some sins have more of an enslavement than others. Right? Drugs and alcohol uh, enslave more than, let's say, ice cream enslaves. Okay, maybe you can be enslaved to ice cream, but ice cream doesn't enslave the way that drugs does. It doesn't enslave the same way alcohol does. And my point is that these kind of sins, these kind of enslavement, it needs more than just a repent, but it needs some serious help and counseling and shepherding and ministry. And so that's where I would say for myself, uh, for Pastor James, Pastor Jason, Pastor Joshua, Elder Bob, that if you are enslaved in any way to this, then we urge you to please talk with us. Uh, please come. Our, our job isn't just to stand up here behind this piece of wood and tell you what to do. Uh, it's to get down on our knees with you. It's to come alongside you and to pray with you and to study God's Word with you and to help you and to minister to you. And so, uh, maybe even more appropriately, to, to, to talk to our wives. Talk to our wives or to talk to the wife of your flock shepherd. But, you know, I can imagine that you could be enslaved to this and you'd be so ashamed and this would be so outside of what we would picture in our church that you would just hide it and you wouldn't let it come out. But if that's the case, then come forward. Not so that all would know, but come to trusted uh, shepherds who can help you and minister to you. Now, uh, let's take the principle from this text that you're all waiting for, right? Okay. This principle is that nothing should enslave you. This principle is that you are to be mastered by none except the Lord Jesus Christ. The word enslaved is a passive participle, meaning that you are not to allow yourself to be mastered by any. In fact, it implies that you have mastery over yourself, and you do. You have been set free from sin. You were once a slave in a dungeon whose door had been sealed and shut over and walled over. You were in pitch black and all you heard was the dripping of water seeping into your cell. You could do nothing to set yourself free. But Christ has shattered your chains. He has crushed through the door. He has freed you from the law of sin and death so that nothing masters you. The word nothing is made of two words. No thing. No thing is to have mastery over you. Alright? So you could translate this applicationally. Do not be enslaved to much chocolate. Right? Do not be enslaved to much soap operas. Do not be enslaved fill in the blank. Right? Whatever it is that you as a woman, your heart is prone to enslavement. Do not be enslaved. Let nothing be your master except for Christ. There is only one Lord. There is only one master. To the elders in, in chapter 1 verse 7, Paul simply tells them not to be drunkards. But here he speaks of an enslavement that women are prone to. Now, not many of you may be slaves to wine, but we'll uh, move to the area of application. But there are many, and maybe this, this isn't just speaking to women, but there are many who are Mastered by food. In other words, uh, the struggle with gluttony. Okay? There's no doubt about it. I know it's one of those sins that doesn't seem as heinous as other sins, but sin is sin. The Cretans struggle with the same thing in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, Cretans are always evil beasts, lazy gluttons. 
Uh, a Cretan poet said that about his own people. Cretans are always evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And the reality is that gluttony is a sin that's prevalent in our church. It is an enslavement that both men and women alike struggle with. Now, here's why I believe that this is so prevalent in our church. Gluttony is the rich person's sin. Is the rich person's sin because rich people can buy more than they need. Everyone in America is rich. Poor countries have never heard of all you can eat. Poor people don't know what it's like to go to a restaurant for all you can eat. But all you can eat doesn't really mean all you can eat. It really means way more than you need. It really means the glutton's one-stop shop. If you go to an all-you-can-eat and eat all-you-can-eat, I think I could say, humbly, about 90% of the time, you're probably in sin. If you go to all-you-can-eat and eat all-you-can-eat, you know, just check yourself. There are times for feasting. There are times for celebrating. There are times for encouraging. There are times for mourning, like last night. I think last night is a good example. It's fitting. It's fitting for James to want to honor his dad and love the church by letting us go to a Korean barbecue and have all you can eat. There's times of feasting. Even throughout the Bible, you see there's times of feasting. But when feasting becomes habit, when every meal becomes all you can eat, when every outing is all you can eat, then I think it's borderline enslavement. It's walking a fine line of letting something master you. How often do you say after your meal, oh, I ate too much. Right? And we say that almost after every meal. Like, look at Joe Pio, he's laughing. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. I'm not, okay? Honestly, I put myself here like I'm not staying on a pedestal. Right? It's, I know it's, it's like one of those sins that we, it's kind of humorous and we, we can laugh about it in some way. But at the same time, God's heart is that we wouldn't be mastered by our appetite. That we would, be, would not be mastered by our mouth. That we would not let our God be our appetite. We all need to learn how to say no. The reality is that it's not the last bite that we should be saying no to. It was 20 bites ago that we should have said no, Right? It wasn't the tenth taco, it was the fifth one, right? So we have to learn like self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, self-mastery. See, the fruit of the Spirit is the attributes of God. The fruit of the Spirit is the characteristics of God. And the Christian is to manifest the characteristics of God, the fruit of the Spirit. The attributes of the Holy Spirit. Self-control. The Holy Spirit, He is self-controlled. He has, God has mastery over all He does. Everything He does is holy. Everything He does is perfect. He does never, He never does anything too less. He never does anything too little. Everything God does is the exact amount of what is necessary. And that's what God calls us to do exactly. Every bite is to be the exact bite. Every meal is to be eaten in the exact amount. And we can apply this to everything. Every night of sleep should be the exact amount. Not too little, but not too much. Movies, a TV, too little is okay, okay? Not too much, right? Not too much, okay? Don't be enslaved. Don't be enslaved by anything. But manifest, believers, manifest God in you. Be self-controlled. Unbelievers, they cannot be self-controlled. They are a slave to their sin. Now, I'll, I'll refrain from moving forward in this, but you're, you're able to self-control. You're able to master your body. You are able to buffet your body and make it your slave, right? Perhaps another application. Women, I know you're waiting for this. Shopping, right? Enslavement goes for shopping as well. Spending, right? This cannot be a Lord or Master in your life. 
This again is the rich person's disease. You know, you know why alcoholism is rampant in other countries? It's because they're poor. You go to Russia and there's a massive struggle with alcoholism. Why? Because they have no money. And they drown their pain. They drown their trials. They drown their struggles. They drink themselves silly so that they can't feel the pain. In a country that has riches, it's not alcohol. It's what you can buy with money. You drown your loneliness. You drown your pain with possessions. And shopping, it's the rich man's disease. Shopping, the malls, they're the drug clinics of our world. It's where everyone goes to get help for their pain. It's where everyone goes to make themselves feel better. They check themselves in for a couple hours and they come out with all their medication and it lasts for about a week and then they've got to go back again. The Bible says you don't have to be enslaved to anything. You don't have to drown your loneliness. You don't have to, to drown or find satisfaction in anything but Christ. It's not wrong to shop unless it's wrong to shop. What it means is it's not wrong to shop if it's right. If you're convinced that your purchase is wise and acceptable, then purchase it. But the issue is not merely the buying of clothes and goods. It's the constant lust and greed in your heart that manifests itself with each purchase. Right? That's the issue. It's the constant lust that can now be manifested. The issue was, you know what, poor people, they're greedy as well. It's just that they can't manifest it because they don't have the cash. But in our culture, we manifest our lust because we had the cash. It all comes out. For some women, going to the mall is equivalent of a man going to a strip joint. You don't touch, but you lust after everything you see. That's what it's like. Everything you look at, oh, I need this. Oh, I need that. Oh, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. And the reality is, it's enslavement. And so I encourage you, be enslaved to Christ. I urge some of you sisters to pay heed to this area. And I practically challenge you this way. Either to abstain from the mall for a month and find out just how enslaved you may possibly be. Stay away from the mall for a month. And how great a struggle it is and how difficult it is to do that will in some way show you maybe the amount that you struggle in this area. Okay. Or let me, uh, let me give you another possibility. Journal your day or week and see how often you think about buying more things. Record how often your heart lusts after the things of this world and record how often your heart yearns for God and then see who your Lord really is. Right? And then, post your results on Zanga. Okay? <laughs> right? Let everyone see, all right? Okay? Now, I, I've, I've principalized this, and more specifically, I've, I've made this you know, application to our church this morning. Because I think that those are a couple areas. I know there's more. But I think that, you know, food and clothing, those are some key areas that I've chosen. I know there's more. I would encourage you, you know, evaluate your own life. What are struggles that you're prone to struggle with being enslaved to? And then... Repent and practically work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out how you're going to keep yourself free from sin and keep yourself enslaved to only God. No star burns in heaven for its own sake. No star says, I want to burn less brightly. I want to please God less and serve myself more. The stars of heaven burn with all their might to shine brightly for the glory of God. And so I ask you, women, this morning, are you concerned with what Jesus thinks of you? Are you concerned about whether Christ finds your heart attractive or not? Are you concerned with whether Christ is honored by the way you conduct yourself as a woman? God is primarily the reason you are alive. God is primary in obedience. He has not called you to obey first for your own good. He demands obedience first for His glory. And yet within this call to obedience, He promises that you will be filled with joy that you will be pleased. And so I exhort you from the heart this morning, 
There are stars that are burning brightly at this moment that are secrets to men but fully known to God. Likewise, there are things in your heart that only God knows about. Thoughts that you have that are for God and God alone. There are ways that you serve and love the saints that none of none know except God. And this proves that you love God. This proves that you long to please Him. And He is no doubt pleased as He sees your secret good and is glorified. But there are also secret sins that none know of. There are undignified things that you do in your closed quarters, undignified words that only a few hear. There is lack of self-control or other indulgences that only God knows. There are gossips that go in your heart or that are shared with only the choicest friends. Perhaps the one you despise and the one you are bitter at will never find out, but God knows and He is not glorified. But there are some sins that are not secret at all. They are not hidden. They are exposed to the entire church. In fact, sometimes you gather together and you commit these sins together. And some of you need to step up and say, we need to change. We need to change the way we as women are living our lives. We need to change the way we as women are spending our money and the the things that we are doing. And we need to be women who understand God's high calling on His daughters. God's high calling upon the women of this church is high. I urge you, allow the Word of God to wash you and remove your tarnish so that you will shine brightly as His choice silver, as His beautiful daughters this morning. Father, we praise You for Your glory, that all things are created by You and for You. And that, Lord, You have filled this church with godly women who fear You, who see Christ as all-satisfying, Lord. Godly young women, godly older women, who shine brightly and magnify Your glory. But Lord, the things that have been revealed, I pray, the tarnish that is on them, that Lord, You would remove it so that they would shine all the more. Oh Lord, we are so blessed to have godly women who love us. Lord, I'm so blessed to have a godly wife who loves me and who is subject to me. Oh Lord, the pastors of this church are so, so abundantly blessed to have godly women who love their children, who are workers at home. Oh Lord, this church is blessed with men who are blessed with godly women who love them and love their children. And yet, Lord, I pray for even for us as men that You would give us wisdom to shepherd our wives, that they would be even more holy, that we would be able to present them, our own wives, in the silver censer before You, that there would be no spot or blemish in them, but that we would present them before You holy and blameless. Give us wisdom first, and then I pray, Lord, for those single women. Oh, Lord, give them great zeal for holiness and godliness that they would shine brightly. Oh, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.